0: So we have Skylar and Dory here with us. And Skylar was gracious enough and kind enough to be willing to preach for me today and to break open the word of life. And I hope that you'll get to know Skylar and Dory. Even if it's not today, if you don't get to meet them today in the months and years to come, I hope you will. Because they're very special people. I wanna tell you one thing about them that I absolutely love. It's this, they are very unassuming people. They haven't come into town and made an awful lot of noise saying, ah, they're very unassuming people. They genuinely love people. They genuinely are excited about being on campus. They genuinely are excited about being part of our church. And that is very, very refreshing and encouraging. I'm very excited for what God might do through our UF on the campus of ECU using Dory and Skyler here. So I'm very thankful for them. And I hope that you will take the time to get to know them. Because I know they want to get to know you. So, Skylar, thank you.
1: I'm praying that the Holy Spirit will hold my bladder. I just realized that I kind of need to use the bathroom, but... I'm going to keep going. And if I jet, you'll know. Usually it works that way. Seriously. You just kind of get going. You don't really know what's going on. Um, Yeah, Story and I are thrilled to be here. Uh, We, not just in this space, but here in Greenville, North Carolina. And we are privileged to serve you um, in this way of being sent by you in our presbytery to the campus of ECU. It is our honor, and we are deeply Excited to be there. It is our heart, as Dave mentioned, that we would get to know you and that you would know us, that we'd be known by you. So I figured I would start after I've told you that I needed to use the bathroom. Dory and I met uh, in college, we both went to App State, and I am from Clayton And Dory is from the Wake Forest Roseville area. If there are any fellow North Carolinians in here, uh, you might know those places. Uh, And we met our last year at App State, and I was previously serving as an assistant pastor in South Georgia uh, when when we got the call to come here. And we have desired um, to be a part of our UF uh, for many years because we believe in the mission and we love college students. Uh, so we are thrilled to be here and serving in that way. Uh, in just a couple of weeks, Dory and I will we'll celebrate nine years, nine whopping years. Uh, I don't know if that's a lot, but it feels like a good amount. Uh, we, we, we have two daughters, Eleanor, uh, who is in the room, and she'll be five in November, and Anna will be two in just a couple of weeks. Both of them are named after very special members of our family, um, and we're, we're really thankful the Lord gave us them. I really love crystal hot sauce. I drink a lot of it, like literally, I drink it. Um, Stevens knows that I put it on every meal I eat, maybe save pancakes. And with that, I'm sure will come inevitable indigestion, uh, but I'm not there yet. I am mostly left-handed. Uh, I write, tie my shoes, brush my teeth, but uh Fun fact, random fact, and to get just a tad uh, more, more serious, well, actually not yet, I had this uh, neurotic tick that's a good way to start a new conversation. Uh, when I was a child, I developed this habit to, to, to soothe me when I was afraid or anxious or just really excited, and that is rubbing the end or the hem of a piece of cloth So, how this works is, uh, if I'm with you perhaps at a movie theater, if Robbie's next to me at the AMC, and there's a scary part on the TV, and he's got his leg crossed, and it's near mine, I could reach over, fold that pant leg up, and start rubbing it, and I'll be just fine, and he'll be totally freaked out by it. What this also means is when babysitters come to our house, they might find a pair of my pants on the ground and be very alarmed by it. But what only it means, babysitters, if you're out there, is that I have worn a pair of pants out, and thus they are now my rubbing pants. So they haven't been worn in a while, probably haven't been washed in a while, but that is an unusual trait of mine. Uh, And there you have it. Um, More sincerely, um, I'm often more comfortable in this space than I am a parent. And I'm really afraid of failure. I had a therapist tell me a number of years ago, Scott, you put up fences all the time. <laughs> like, wait, I'm a Pharisee? Both. You, you see a cliff, something that you could lose or fail at and you, and you put up a wall either to mitigate that fall, to, to uh, miss uh, that, that failure. So I've worked really hard uh, to try not to and um, I, I seek to, I've, I've often sought to leverage many people and things to sort of protect me from failure. And part of that is the heart behind this text that we're going to come to in just a moment. As, as we see a picture of what it looks like to toil apart from God and the invitation he has for us to work with him. But before we get there, thank you uh, for supporting the work of RUF. Uh, you, your imagination, your energy, your passion, your desire for a group of people that don't necessarily hang out with you all the time. That is a gift from the Lord. And you need to know that. And we are benefiting from that. So thank you for your partnership in that way. Um, so excited, so thankful for that. So this uh, past semester, I'll move into to sermonizing here. Uh, We did a 12-week series in the Psalms, and if there are any students in the room, I'm sorry, you've already heard this, uh, this whole sermon series. So if you need to leave and go grab some food, you're welcome to. Uh, But so we did a 12-week series in the Psalms, and you probably know, especially if you've been around the church uh, any time of your life, that the Psalms or the Psalter, as some will refer to it, is something like the songbook for God's people. It's the hymnal. Uh, for God's ancient people, and even us today. it They are the very lyrics of God's heart for God's people, right? So Paul instructs us with, with uh, theological prose. Um, Abraham and Moses teach us historically over, over the period of telling, telling stories. And here in the Psalms, we learn... About the heart of our God, by the songs he has written for us through his people. Specifically, we're going to be looking at Psalm 127. And it is in a section of the Psalms called the Songs of Ascent. And this little section of of the larger uh, psalm book are what many will believe are a collection of songs that God's people used um, and, and sung on their way to worship in Jerusalem. What I've A phrase I often used this past semester is that it was something of a playlist as the people would take a road trip. So depending on your age, well, you might have different forms of maybe a mixtape or a burnt CD or an iPod, whenever that was a thing. And even now, today, God's people would sing these songs likely hum these songs, whistle these songs, they provided a collective identity for God's people as they reminded themselves of them and sung them over one another on the way. So to orient you specifically to Psalm 127, let me quickly uh, share what could be some historical context to this song, okay? Okay. Solomon is its writer. And if you have your Bibles open, you'll see that. It says, Song of Ascent of Solomon. And chances are, it could be true, and and I think it likely is true, that he is writing a poem, writing a song, covering the principles that we see in Genesis 11 and 12. The world's grandest... Most arrogant work project ended in disaster. The Tower of Babel is recorded in Genesis chapter 11. The unexcelled organization and all the energy that was concentrated into building it resulted in what? A shattered community and garbled communication that you and I are still, in some ways, seeking to recover. It says in Genesis 11, they were trying to make a name for themselves. They were trying to justify their existence. And as the pages of Revelation are turned, in Genesis chapter 12, we hear the story of Abraham. Man's plan to save themselves and God's plan to justify them through a human being. It's in that backdrop that we hear Solomon sort of poetically writing about these two alternative worldviews. You ready? Let's listen to God's music. Psalm 127, a song of ascent of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a inheritance from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we have read the lyrics to your song for us. Jesus, we pray that you would sing this over us, to us, and even for us today. Spirit, would you align our hearts to the truth, to the grace found here? Most of all, tune our hearts to not hear words on a page, but do indeed hear the good news of Jesus for his glory and our good. Amen. So Psalm 127 tells us the right way to work and the wrong way to work. The right way to work and the wrong way to work. But before we can learn anything about those two approaches, you need to know this. God works so that you and I can rest. Sounds strange? God works so that you and I can rest. The end of verse 2, we see this verse that we'll come back to that, for he gives to his beloved sleep. It's from there that I'm coming this point to you. But here's the problem. We we disbelieve it. Perhaps we've never heard that. Or we're just unaware You see, the culture that you and I have inherited and likely perpetuated is that we pick up right where Babel left off. Greenville, North Carolina deifies work. In many ways, who you are is connected to your business card, to the the letters that may or may not come before or after your name. This is not a source of shame. It's simply to say that we in the West, we have learned to live and have all of our being through what we can create. The people that we know, the leverage that we have, the opportunities that we have in our career. We continue the cycle, the arrogant cycle of our ancient parents who built that tower long ago. Others of us, perhaps ambivalent about our own selves, have a different issue. It's also arrogance. And this one we see often sort of manifest itself and what we refer to as like the Far East. You're like, what does the Far East have to do with us this morning, Aladdin? All of work is tainted, right? Have you heard this before? Like, Every effort that you make, it doesn't ever provide what you really want. Thus, the solution is to withdraw. It is to become motionless. Have you seen the Buddha? Here is this large man with his legs crossed staring at his navel. He is the symbol of this worldview. And both of these things exist. Both in our souls and even around us. And so the truth that God works so we can rest doesn't sink in. And we need an antidote for that. We need it. I'm convinced mostly because it's true of me that I can be a functional deist. Does that make sense? So both of these arrogances that I just described, whether you work yourself, you sort of deify the effort, the work, iPhone life, or you sit in the corner and you just binge TV because you're too ashamed of who you are or you think, you know, whatever you find yourself in, the resulting lie that you begin to believe is that God is, he made the world, but he sort of wound it up like a music box and let it go. If anything, he's a cosmic therapist who, if you call on him, he can come and help, but he's not really active in the world. We pay lip service to God's sovereignty. But when that spreadsheet that we're typing with our hands, that meeting that we have with our partners at work, that ride to school or to practice with our kids, we really think we're just alone. We really think at best he could be somewhere in the distance, maybe with his hands crossed. I don't know. Wondering if we're going to do our thing, be committed to our work, Functional deism is live and well. And it's a faulty worldview as a product of our arrogant selves apart from grace in Christ. So what is that grace-filled antidote? It's that point that God works so we can rest. So let's first look at God working first. The psalm begins its first verse with, with this. Unless the Lord builds the house... Unless the Lord watches over the city. The point being that Solomon is trying to make is there is a giant presupposition in our work, and it's that God is working. He is at work. Before we can ever get to work, we must know that He is working before we start it, while we're doing our thing, and after we die. He is working. His revelation to the world began, or at least what we learned it was, is that God went to work. He went to work. And and we don't see on the pages of Scripture a divine journal about God telling us uh, how great that, uh, like, we don't hear some of his attributes in this section. We don't hear, um, you know, what the weather was on day three. We don't get A cheap horoscope no offense horoscope readers in the days of creation we get a journal of work we get a God who invented who imagined who brought to life out of the love and the triune heart of God he worked and not only does he work unless he works unless he watches he's first if I haven't already made that point let me make it clear Our confession says in chapter 5, section 3, that God is the first cause. He's the first cause. Why is that important? Skylar? You see, if God is not the first worker, the products, the pursuits, the goals of our lives are really up to us. Right? I used the word bougie in the early service and I was really proud of myself. So, have you heard about these bougie uh, co-working spaces maybe before uh, COVID hit? Like you could, you could rent an office space with another person. They're usually pretty modern, pretty cool. They got coffee. Uh, you know, you, you, you sort of lease a desk. Part of that functional deistic view of life, you find yourself to be a co-worker with God. You, You don't necessarily believe it deep down, but you actually function as if you and he are on the same page. In some ways, Dave has been talking about this as he's been going through Revelation. And he's reminding us that that evil and good is not a yin and a yank. Evil, in fact, exists. Hell exists beneath God's goodness. Your children's behavior is up to you in this worldview. Your sanctification is up to you. The advancement of your career is up to you. The peace in your heart is up to you. The depth of your gratitude is up to you. The success of that planned vacation that really went down the toilet is up to you. And no, says Psalm 127. Because God builds, God invents, God works, God guards, God watches. There is a creational org chart and you have not been invited into the C-suite level of it. And many of us fall prey to the whisper from hell that says that life would be less chaotic if you were. A couple points I hope of application here. The first is that Because God is, in fact, working, right? He's the first cause. We cannot measure the effectiveness of our work based on the results, at least results only. Let me qualify that. That's why I just added the word only there. I understand that in many of your professions, in mine, in fact, there are measurables. There are deliverables. There are ways that I need to show uh, that I'm, in fact, doing what I've been asked to do. And that's good. But what can happen is we can begin to conflate whatever that raw data says and the work of God in the world. You see that because God is at work. There's some snazzy um, "Help Make Your Church Grow" books that says successful ministry uh, has the ABCs: attendance, butts and seats, budget. Money in the Bank, C, campus, sexy buildings. And that's all that Dave wants. <laughs> that was a human author. That was not that is not Psalm 127. You see, when when he is in fact at work. He not only created the world, He's not at a distance, but He actually is providential in it, which is to say that He governs and sustains all of us and our actions. And this is good. You see, at RUF, at ECU, I had the same problem as, as maybe any of you do. Pick your profession. Who is successful at that profession? Are you ever tempted to think, man, if I could do what that person did, or if, or if students would respond to me the way they responded to that person? And this cycle will only leave you, what does the passage say, eating the bread of anxious toil. You see, Paul reminds us of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. You might remember this. He says that I planted, but Apollos watered. Remember hearing this? But God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but God who gives the growth. So the first point was, if you're able, please stop connecting the raw data measurables of your effectiveness with the work that God is in fact doing in your life. Through you and even for you. Verse two, the end it, we, I already mentioned it. This is the hinge of this psalm. We, we see that for He gives to his beloved sleep. And this, this is the place uh, to which song, or excuse me, verses one and two A and B are working their way toward, and they're the place from which verses three through five flow. If you were to noodle around in this text, you would see that this is the focal point. This is where the Holy Spirit is saying, this is where I want the magnifying glass to be. For God gives to his beloved sleep. But if you're like me and you've you heard this psalm, and as I've read it early on, I was really perplexed how verses 3 through 5 connected with verses 1 and 2. It didn't make sense. So, I want to do two things. First, very simply, hopefully very quickly, I want to show just some basic Hebrew uh, verbal connections that, that Solomon is making to sort of build our case that this is not a separate song. This is one song inspired of God for God's people. And second, and hopefully much more poignantly or uh, profoundly really, see that the picture that Solomon paints here is exactly the point of the passage. So first, these little verbal cues. You, in verse one, it says, unless the Lord builds the house, the word house here has a couple of very clear connotations in Hebrew, just like we use the word house. It can mean a couple different things. Two of those options are literally the, the sticks and wood that make up the building of your house, right? Like Babel. The other are the people within it, your household. Or your home. If you're listening to this in Hebrew, it's obvious you're not even you, your brain made this connection before you're even told that there is a connection. Additionally, Solomon has this very good wordplay going on. When it says to build, and it says the word children, these words sound awfully similar in this context. Right? break pedal, you broke my, you broke my heart. It's, a, it's, a, it's just a simple pun. In Hebrew, if we, if we could strip it down and we could hear it sung, we would have no problems making this connection. Okay, that's, that's finished. Now, more importantly, there's this picture of what godly, effortless work looks like. And by now, you may have made it on your own. The work of making children. I asked the early services, it was pretty much the riskiest question I've ever asked. When was the last time you had sex with your spouse? I know there's lots of layers with this, but I hope that it was good. No one walking, again, caveats, of course, would would call the work of making children work. Children are not born through human effort, but through the miraculous processes of reproduction which God has created among us. Dr. Gay is still stunned by this reality. Seriously, it's amazing. We see in this psalm that children are what? From the Lord. They are a reward. Solomon is making it crystal clear. You do not earn these things. They are from him to you. So that when you are intimate with your spouse, you are literally resting in God's work for you. Now, the point isn't that if you're not sexually active, you should go and do that because I would get fired and that would be untrue. There's a broader principle here. And I think it's this. I think that work as designed by God for God's people would do this. Birth relationship. Your life's work is people because you're his life's work. Jesus didn't have kids. How can this be true of him? Oh, But by his word, he he made his best friend look after his mother. This rest-first paradigm of biblical work. Remember, God worked six days. On the last day, he rested. And now for us, the Sabbath is the first day of the work week. (laughs) We rest before we work. In this paradigm, your work is fundamentally about The people. I love Chick-fil-A, and I think if it has a really good, affirmed, encouraged, perhaps given a pay raise staff, that that grease is hot, those fries are delicious, and that chicken sandwich is to die for. It's okay if you don't agree. Dan Cathy once said, and this went viral within his business and without, I don't even think his you know, speechwriter or comms director gave him this talking point. It's just baked into the DNA. He said, we're not in the chicken business. We're in the people business. I know it's risky sometimes to create some sort of human character as a, an example of, of being the moral exemplar. So don't hear me saying that. I'm simply trying to illustrate what it means to see a person at the end of your work. To connect a face to what you do. Because that is what God is doing with you. Paul refers to us as God's workmanship. I've often told students this, you are not a project to be fixed. You are clay that he is holding, that he is shaping. You are his life's work. And as his kids, he's given us the privilege to create, to be dignified in relationships. Practically speaking, I don't know if COVID has taken a toll on um, some of your relationships. Maybe they have, and I'm sure you've already thought of this. But what would it be like to, to, to try to reconnect with that person that you've lost contact with? Friendship is, in some ways, a small means of grace. It's a way to rest in God's work for you. How how can you reconnect with that somebody? I started this this little talk, this uh, sermon, um, and I said that Solomon is sort of writing in, in poetic form, illustrating at least, The principles of of self-work, Tower of Babel, and God-work. God giving a child to Abraham's wife. Chapter 12 of Genesis. But here's something you must know. This wisdom, like lots of Solomon's wisdom, was lost on his own soul. How is it that you can have all the knowledge? How is it that That you request wisdom from God. He gives it to you. And yet your life doesn't look like it. It's because I don't want you to leave today thinking. Man I need to rest better. I need to work less frenetically. It won't work. You'll need to go back to the gas station. And get some more gas. Because. Let me just. So Solomon's kingdom like both literally and figuratively was ruined according to First kings chapter 11 his building his temple his you remember that became reckless first kings chapter 9 and his marriages also in first kings 11 were a disastrous denial of god how well maybe the question is don't walk out of here thinking that because you've heard it that it's then going to be a part of your life You see, Solomon simply and and necessarily points to someone else who's like Solomon's 27th grandson, like 27 times, 27th power. Jesus. Jesus. Jesus recapitulates, I think, and even fulfills, I don't think I know, the principles here in Psalm 127 for you. And they are from the words that we had when we were called to worship. Come to me. This is Jesus' version of Psalm 127. I'm not dismissing it. It is God's word for us to be fed from. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. God works so that you can rest. May the Spirit make it so in our hearts. Jesus never struggled to receive rest from his Father. Do you remember those episodes when all the Synoptic writers record him sleeping on the front of a boat? And his exasperated, frustrated, ticked-off buds were like, man, what are you doing? He didn't have a home, but he slept like a baby? He also didn't work on his own. We're told in John's Gospel, he tells us on at least two occasions that are recorded, that he does nothing apart from the Father. He only does what he sees the Father doing, and he only says what he hears the Father saying. What I'm trying to tell you is that what Solomon couldn't achieve, Jesus did. He never worked to, he never ate the bread of anxious toil, in the way of distrust. He rested deeply in his Father, for you. Verse five, or yeah, verse five of, of, of Psalm 127. It looks like Solomon just kind of goes on a little tailspin, a little rabbit trail as he talks about children, but it's not. We see that this young father has lots of kids, likened to to arrows and a quiver. And he goes to the gate where he does business or perhaps is met by a hostile neighbor. This is what it means to go to the gate of the town, the gate of the city. This is where interactions took place. And he wasn't put to shame. Why? Because this 70 year old man took 12, 20 year old sons with him. He wasn't going to be put to shame that day. The work of resting in his father had produced the very blessing of shameless living in his life. And Jesus was put to shame. Deuteronomy tells us that it is curse that you would hang upon a tree. He became our shame so that we would never be put to shame. I wanted to return just for a moment, this yoke image. We all know this, um, that, that yokes literally are heavy. And if, if I didn't make that connection clear, I'm referring back to Matthew 11. Jesus says, put on my yoke. Dory tells me I do this all the time. I'll say something and I won't tell you the context. And then everyone gets confused. You're talking about ice cream? You know, I, I, sometimes I don't connect dots. But it was literally a burden. A yoke is a burden, right? It's, it's, a, it's a burden intended to streamline work, uh, increase productivity and efficiency. It's, in time, it's intended to sort of literally lock you in for the sake of a farmer or for a warrior. So you wonder, I hope, what makes Christ's burden light? Or excuse me, his yoke light and his burden easy. And I think it's something like this, based on what we've just talked about, him doing what Solomon couldn't. By faith, when we are united to Christ, we, we are indeed yoked to him forever. We're talking about the glory of that in Revelation 21 and 22 and it's as if we're at work one day and we're, we're plowing a field and it's taken all day and we've worked really hard and we're just stuck next to Jesus and he is, you know, rowing it up. And at the end of the day, he turns around and we're next to him and he looks out over this field and he turns and looks at us and he says, well done, Son. Well done, daughter. And you look at him, you're like, I didn't do anything. And it's precisely the point. He gives you the credit for his work. My wife started baking recently. And we will both tell you that neither of us are cooks. We eat to live, though we would like to live to eat but she has picked up baking, and, and part of the success in this that we've all really appreciated is that she can really follow a recipe, like down, like she's got it down, and, and it's, it's really impeccable. And she and Eleanor will, will be up there, and they'll be making homemade chocolate chip cookies or these really delicious scones, and they even made a pound cake recently, and it was divine. Divine. You see, almost every time, Eleanor will come to me and say, Dad, check this out. You've got to try some of this. This is delicious. And the truth is, she didn't necessarily make those delicious treats. But in her mother's eyes, they couldn't have been made without her. And this is the way your Father in Heaven sees you. He wants to give you credit for something that you have no chance at getting. All because he loves you. Because he's gentle and lowly. I'll end with this. You can either live for the heart of God or from it. You can work for the smile of God or from it. You can build a new identity for Christ Will receive His for you, and Paul carries this promise of rest to the beloved and to Romans chapter sin, and he says that you will never be put to shame for those who have rested in Christ.